and welcome to the Elysian Wine Club podcast, where I, Samantha Ray, help you, the casual enthusiast, feel wine confident. With over 15 years experience as a certified sommelier, I am here to bring you the wonderful and enchanting world of wine in a sexy and digestible way. I want to show you that learning about wine can enhance your life, your connections, and your pleasure. This is the Elysian Lifestyle. Hey fam, it's Samantha Ray, and I am back with another episode. Today, we are exploring the history of wine. So if you follow me on social media, I mean, and if you don't follow me on social media yet, at Elysian Wine Club on Instagram, I was doing some polls about what I should do for my next episode. And this one tied with wine regions. So I have something fun and sneaky up my sleeve for the wine regions episode as well. Um, But today we're going to dive into the history of wine. Now, this is obviously a humongous topic. And I'm going to try my best to break this down into very digestible pieces. I want you to walk, I hope that you will walk away from this with um, really just like fun, interesting information. If you're someone who likes to drink wine, especially in like a social setting or at a dinner party, this is the kind of thing where, you know, you pull out, it's it's not only for you just to pull out fun facts, information when talking about wine with other people or other uh, enthusiasts or other friends. Um, This is also meant to help sort of connect the dots about wine. So, what I want from what I want you to take from this is that wine is an extremely multifaceted beverage throughout all of history. You know, it's been nourishment. It's been uh, I mean to get intoxicated. It has been spiritual offerings. It is uh, been a part of ceremonial occasions, a part of social gatherings, literally throughout almost all of Western culture. So. Let's start there. I'm going to start us with a quote, um, only because I love this. I, I almost wanted to try and paraphrase this, but then I was like, well, I can't say it as good as Ian Gately. So Ian Gately wrote a book called Drink, The Cultural History of Alcohol. A lot of the information, I've read this book a few times over now, a lot of the information today is from this book, also from some of the other you know, textbooks. Um, and things that I have read and learned over the years. But I will give him a huge shout out. So we're going to start with this quote. Quote, throughout history, the place of alcohol in our meals, medicines, and leisure activities has been a matter of fierce debate. Whereas some cultures have distinguished it as a sacred fluid whose consumption should be limited to ceremonial occasions, Others have treated it as a kind of food and ignored or accommodated any incidental effect that it might have upon the psyche. And few have even tried to exclude it from society altogether. Such differing views have often been concurrent, thus increasing the mystery surrounding alcohol. In both ancient Greece and in the present millennium, it has been credited with both inspiration and destruction. End quote. So to paraphrase that, wine has always been a 
fundamental part of Western civilization, and it's been synonymous and intertwined with culture, art, celebration, and social gatherings. So anyways, let's go on a little journey from ancient civilizations um, and explore this enchanting world of wine, this enchanting history of wine. So I'm going to break this down into three parts of history. First is going to be prehistory and the origins of wine, uh, as well as the ancient cultures and civilizations. So that's the one first part. We're going to go into medieval times and what that meant. And then like early modern history to modern history. So let's dive right into it. Okay, so the oldest alcoholic beverage ever found was found in a clay jar. So we're starting with just like going way back. This is prehistory. So we're going to around 7,000 BC. This was found in China and it wasn't wine. It was a clay jar. And what they found inside was remnants of an alcohol made from honey, fruits, grapes, and berries. So 7,000 BC, uh, the oldest recorded, um, alcoholic beverage ever found in any kind of vessel. Then the oldest jar that once held wine is around 6,000 BC. This is in what is present day known as like Georgia, Armenia. This is the first proof that human civilization was cultivating plants to manufacture alcohol. Um, And this again was in that fertile crescent. So the geographical area between the Mediterranean and the Persian Gulf. Now, this was proof. So 6,000 BC was proof that humans were manufacturing alcohol, but we don't know at that point. There's no evidence at that point if it was just used for nourishment or if it was actually used for some social, social application or intoxication. Where we're going to go to next then is our first one of our obviously when I say wine is as old as civilization I really mean um, what we know as ancient civilization so where you know we start with our history is around those like Mesopotamians as well as ancient Egypt so ancient Egypt is really where it all started and where it all started as far as we know it was a part of culture So this is around 3500 BC, so ancient Egypt, 3500 BC to 332 BC. So this is where we see significant evidence that Egyptians, the Egyptians were manufacturing wine for both sustenance and intoxication. And wine was manufactured with more sophisticated methods and with a great deal more care than any any other agricultural product. The Egyptians dedicated many slaves, much land to perfecting its quality. There's many, uh, there's tons of records of celebrations and festivals where drunkenness, actual drunkenness um, and intoxication were a part of celebrating the deities. So this is the first time in history where we really see human beings using wine, manufacturing wine in a social cultural aspect. And their fascination marks the appearance of a new bond between mankind and a type of alcoholic beverage. So not only was it food or liquid inspiration, it was also capable of, you know, stimulating the taste buds in a manner that no other edible substances could. You know, whereas a loaf of bread can taste the same from village to village, 
the wine from neighboring vineyards might taste radically different. So this is, there is evidence um, of of the Egyptians starting a class and rating system for wine. Um, and it's, and it has been evident from either like carvings or what they found in tombs. So this is anyways, point being the Egyptians, the first ones to really start cultivating, um, noticing that wines tasted different from different areas. Uh, and it was not only that, but it was also currency. Now, before we go any far farther into ancient Greece, we have to talk about the spiritual aspect of wine, okay? So this was, okay, so we can see evidence of almost this, I don't know whether it's artistic or scientific way of producing wine, but it was such a religious practice as a part of their social uh, and religious gatherings, so the Egyptian, so I want to talk about a few of the deities that were created in some of these ancient cultures because it's super interesting. So the Egyptian deity of God, it, they were named Osiris. So it was the god of dead, death, life, vegetable regeneration, so just like plants, uh, and wine. So its devotees, after prayers and rituals, would eat bread and drink wine in the belief that these were uh, the flesh and blood of their divinity. So sound familiar? This is what I find so fascinating. Literally 3,000, 2,000 BC. This is before Christianity, before uh, we used wine as the blood of Christ in communion um, and bread to symbolize uh, the body. It would, it, anyways, so th- this is one of those things where I'm just like, it, this goes back so far, all the way from ancient Egypt. So just hold on to that little tidbit, because as we go through the other cultures, we're going to see sort of a, almost a repeat of this deity over and over, and this theme over and over again. Now, as much as we could like spend a ton of time on each of these ancient cultures, I really just want to like briefly uh, touch on them because we could go forever, right? So we're going to jump to ancient Greece, right? So Egyptians were the first ones to really start cultivating and then ancient Greece came in about 1600 BC, right? So um, the Egyptians are still there. Greece is coming in. They're starting to make, a, you know, their mark Uh on civilization. So as, as it, as it um, has to do with wine, ancient Greece, so as, as much as we see evidence of all of this cultivation and that it was a part of social in Egypt, ancient Greece was the first civilization to really leave like coherent accounts of its thoughts on alcohol, to like enumerate its benefits, its detriments. Wine was almost omnipresent on their society. Uh, Again, offering to deities as a currency, drunk ritually, used as a medicine, used to quench thirst. So, and this was really the Greeks were responsible for really starting to more industrialize this wine growing, specifically in Southern Italy. And then as Greece moved into its classic age, 
You know, this, uh, this, uh, the classic age of Greece is, you know, the, the, the one struck by an outburst of creativity, you know, the science, philosophy, arts, right? So we think Socrates, Plato, Hippocrates, Hippocrates, they all left their opinions about alcohol, specifically wine. So poets, playwrights, politicians, philosophers, they really all um, left a lot of account about wine. And on that note, I'm going to, I'm going to jump into a little quote um, from one of the famous poets, Panisis, uh, from that time. Quote, wine is like fire, an aid in sweet relief, wards off all ills and comforts every grief. Wine can, of every feast, the joys enhance. It's, it kindles soft desire. It leads the dance. I don't know, you guys. I just love that. I'm like, I'm a very romantic person. If you've been following me and you know, um, you know a little bit of my out view, uh, my my view on life and of wine. Um, it's that wine is so intertwined with this romantic part of life, right? The meals, the gatherings, um, and the time. And this is, and 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 I guess what I another thing you can just like to take away from this is that. Wine has been like this from the beginning of time, right? It's very incredible, but I digress. Okay, so now we've seen Egypt is starting to make wine. Greece is really the one who's starting to industrialize and is really becoming so omnipresent in their society and in their culture. Uh, So I want to go back to talking about deities, right? So we talked about Osiris, Now we're going to talk about Dionysus. So Dionysus uh, was the Greek god of wine. And then I want to, as as much as we haven't gone into ancient Rome yet, Dionysus and then Bacchus. If you've ever heard the word Bacchus, a lot of, um, like, I feel like there's a lot of wine bars called Bacchus or Bacchanalia or things like this. These were the, so Dionysus and Bacchus, they were the Greek and Roman mythology. So wine was associated with both of them, the god of wine, fertility, revelry, um, celebrated for the gift of wine and its ability to induce ecstasy. So Dionysus famously, there's this famous, I guess, quote, if you may, even though they're mythological, uh, wine inhabits the soul like ecstasy. And, right, we, we're seeing now this, um, how reminiscent this, both Dionysus and Bacchus are of Osiris. And the Greeks admit, there is proof that the Greeks admit that um, their god also resembles Osiris in some aspects and that they had really borrowed from the Egyptians when crafting their god. Now, the the Greek culture, before we move on to the Romans, Greek culture was also one who had like very ornate festivals um, where wine played a central role in the celebrations. So involving rituals, performance, and really this consumption of wine as a sacred act. And all three gods, so Osiris, Dionysus, and Bacchus, they have always been synonymous with luxury pleasure, amusement. Now, this is, this is the big piece here, the untamed side of human nature and the liberation from convention. So this is really, I think, one of those big, like, hold on, let's stop. 
Here's three major cultures, even though I ha- we haven't really gone into what the Romans practically did with wine, right? We've talked about the Egyptians and the Greeks. But all three of these ancient civilizations had this very, very similar god, which they really have borrowed from each other. But it's a piece of their society. It's a part of their society that represents this untamed side of human nature, the liberation from convention. I'm just going to leave it, leave it with you like that. Um, I find that very, very interesting. Alrighty. Well, if I haven't lost you yet, I'm like, as I'm doing this podcast, I'm like, oh, maybe this is dry as fuck. I don't know. Um, but hopefully, hopefully this is of interest. So the next, so then we're going to talk about the Romans. So we've talked about the Romans God, but what I want to, to talk about as far as the Romans is that they were the next great drinking civilization to emerge in the classical world. And they really like, they've left us a comprehensive picture of their drinking habits, but it didn't start there. In its formative years, Rome was almost dry. So the Roman culture was dry. But within a few decades, things shifted. And why? The the change came much more pragmatically than culturally, though, right? Wine started to form a part of the rations as safe water was increasingly hard to come by, right? So we're in this culture... Um, the Romans really didn't cultivate or make wine. They were uh, they were coming in, but they were coming in. They were coming up in the world, but their culture was dry. But there came a time where water just wasn't safe enough. And we see this with beer. We see this with wine. Maybe I want to jump back just a little bit. So uh, what I do want to say is that just out of curiosity for people, beer also um, came into the picture I believe it was, um, uh, this is a great question, actually. Um, beer was really, it, it was coming into the picture about the same. It was about a few thousand years later than the discovery of wine. Um, but really, it was this idea that wine was for the elite uh, and beer was really for the, the working class. Okay. Okay, so anyways, let's back up. Rome was almost dry. Within a few decades, things shifted. It became a part of the rations. Then, because it became a part of the rations and because it became um, so important to the health of the people, once the Romans decided to get into viticulture, they applied like the same thoroughness as they did to everything that they did. So this means everything was assembled according to a formula to make a uniform procedure for winemaking, um, the way they cultivated the grape. And this is where we see the, e- the earliest surviving prose work on viticulture and winemaking from its time in history. So obviously we've seen other, um, lots of other cultural evidence, but this is when we actually see um, the oldest living, you know, book or guide on viticulture, and when I say viticulture, I mean the um, the growing of the grapes and then winemaking. So Rome started making wine on a huge scale. It spread r- right across its whole empire, so that Rome was event Rome was eventually importing shiploads um, of amphoras. At the time, amphoras were like clay vessels because they didn't have like oak barrels at the time. So amphoras, um, from her colonies in Spain, North Africa, and across the Mediterranean. 
when when by the time that they did withdraw from which is now France around like 5 AD the Romans had laid the foundation for all of the most famous or most sorry for all of the most famous vineyards across modern Europe so the Romans were really uh important in establishing the vineyards across Europe um, and making it very methodical, very scientific. Okay, so we're moving on into the medieval period now um, and the fall of the Roman Empire. So we're around 5th century, um, 5th to 15th century. So this spans about 10 centuries, but we're going to do a Coles Notes here and why it's important for wine. So with the fall of the Roman Empire, it is the church who became the greatest vineyard owner. So as that whole empire declined, um, the whole societal structure and government collapsed. And the church um, became the landowner of so much of what Rome um, owned or had. And also with the religious significance of wine in Christian rituals as well, right? We're seeing this come through. And then combined with the church's vast, um, I guess, like expertise and land holdings at that time, it really just solidified its role as that major vineyard owner and wine producer for several centuries. So the monasteries became the centers of like the knowledge, the education, the agricultural development. And it was the monks that cultivated the vineyards within their monastery, monastery grounds, um, and wine production was just a part of their daily lives. Um, if you go to a lot of the old vineyards, specifically in and around France, you'll notice monasteries in uh, in some of the most, um, I guess, what you would deem like important or historical uh, vineyards, appellations, towns, cities. You will still see remnants of this. So this is why this is important, right? And the, the the one important the one important thing I want you to take away from this is that, um, you know, we've come through all of these early civilizations. Now um, they've really kind of figured out how to cultivate wine. It's become a big social thing, um, but the monasteries were the one place. And this part in history, the medieval part, was really where um, those monasteries and the monks played a crucial role in preserving the winemaking knowledge and techniques and advancing winemaking knowledge and te techniques. So they meticulously recorded and shared um, all of these techniques, you know, improving the viticulture, the fermentation pro process, the aging process. Um, and that, that was really, I guess, if we look back at this part in history and you just want to know about wine, that is the most important piece. Is they really started to, you know, um, really preserve that knowledge. Now, one fun little fact, let's do a fun fact, because um, the one important exception to the domination of the church in all of these European vineyards were specific, you know, and very centered around France, um, was the thriving vineyards of Bordeaux. So Bordeaux at that time, there was a relationship with um, the crown of England because the English had developed quite a taste for the fleet loads of light claret. Now, if you don't know what the word claret means, um, it's basically like a, 
It's a French word for like easy light drinking red wine. It was often claret is still sometimes synonymous with Bordeaux. If people say claret, um, that's what they, it's usually synonymous with Bordeaux. So um, the thriving vineyards of Bordeaux, that's really where the development was like simply commercial. It had that single market in view uh, of England. And with that marriage with the crown, it just bent its efforts filling like like huge annual wine fleets with loads of this, what they call light claret. So um, you might also call it Vin Nouveau, which is like young wine that the English loved. So fun little fact, when the church was um, in charge of, you know, all of that wine growing region, there was this Bordeaux was sort of that first region to have that real close relationship with the crown of England, Um and tried to satiate its people's um, cravings from there. All righty. Okay, that's as long as we're going to spend there. And now we're really going to... Now, if you have stuck with me this long, we're going to move into modern history. Um, we're going to do a quick little spurt through sort of early modern history, and then we're going to go into more modern history. Early modern history. All right, so at the end of the medieval period, this is where we have this sort of like early modern era pop up. So this is where, again, you know, the Reformation is happening. So the Catholic-owned vineyards and like the other church properties underwent significant changes again. The transition um, occurred because of historical shifts, political shifts, right? Like at the Protestant Reformation, the dissolution, dissolution of the monasteries. Um, they seize those church lands. Like, you know, we're just going to see this throughout history. New, new, <laughs> somebody new is coming in. So lands and vineyards that were owned by the church were confiscated by secular authorities, um, mostly like the kings and nobilities. So what happened then after the church is the kings and nobilities surged this, like this really emerging ruling class, and they granted those estates and the properties to other nobility. So um, this is where this becomes a lot less owned by the church, and we're seeing this revival of trade and commerce. So, you know, it's facilitated by, like, growing populations, changes in economic structure, um, and it's, like, more market-based economy. So this is where we're seeing that, like, modern, modern era start to advance. We're having technological advances. This, um, you know, especially with agriculture, so new tools, new techniques, which improved productivity. So you can see already how this would... Um, already uh, tie right back into wine as well. Uh, there's culturally an awakening in that renaissance, right? Revival of this classical knowledge back to this, like, think back to, you know, when I was talking about this, like, classic Greece, right? Um, the philosophers, the artists, the poets, there's this, there's this revival of this classic knowledge of art, intellectual pursuits. Um, and it, 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 now we're seeing this renewed interest in ancient philosophies, um, and potentially even, you know, exploring what those ancient cultures used wine for culturally, where the church kind of just like took away. Um, and then the expand, this expansion uh, of knowledge as well, just as, uh, as we move through history. Okay, so as far as timeline, let's, let's regroup here for a second. So uh, the 
the part of history I was just talking about, like the Renaissance and the Reformation, 15 to 17th centuries. Okay, this is when we're seeing those, what I was just talking about happen. Now we're going to move into sort of the last portion of this. So 16th to really like the 20th century. So from the 16th to the 18th centuries, we need to talk about one thing. <laughs> colonization. This is where the globe was expanding, right? European explorers were introducing grapevines to new territories. So this is the time in history. So we're going to, again, we're going to pause here. We're going to talk about old world and new world. If you've listened to my podcast or some of the other things um, that I have put out or been to a class of mine, you're probably familiar, or if you're just familiar, anyways, old world is when it, when we talk about old world wines, that's just in Europe, Middle East, like everything we have been talking about so far is old world wine. It's how wine was discovered and how it was spread across both the Middle East and Europe. Okay, old world, new world is now, new world is now developing in the 16th to 18th centuries. So this colonial expansion. So uh, the Europeans were taking their grapevines with them as they colonized. So some of the first regions, actually the first region, uh, regions, I guess, is the Americas. So both the U.S., but one of the first, um, one of the first cultures to take vines uh, across to the Americas was actually the Spanish. And it was modern day Mexico, Peru, and Chile as well as uh, actually the Americas, as in U.S., and California and Virginia. But winemaking didn't take off there for a long time. Um, it, but it was, in fact, one of the first places that um, the colonizers had taken. After that was South Africa. Um, and Australia and New Zealand uh, came quite a bit later. So Point being, this is where we're starting to see wine spread across the world, right? New continents um, where it just developed and diversified over time, and we're still seeing that. So first, colonization. The second thing we want to look at as we're kind of moving past that 16th to 18th century is that between that 18th and 19th, this is where we're starting to see... Um, actually, sorry, we're going to have to back up a second... Um, before global expansion and New World Viticulture, or right kind of in that 16th to 18th century, we need to talk about the glass bottle and the cork. So up until then, wine had been either stored in like barrels um, and or amphora, like I talked about, like a clay vessel. The development of the glass bottle and the cork was huge for both transportation uh, aging and spoilage. So this was a big technological advancement in wine um, right around that same time. Okay. Sorry, now I'm going to go forward. So 18th to 19th centuries, this is where we start to see classification systems and like appellations start to really be created. This is way too big of a concept to get into because I, I want to keep this like still digestible and something you can just like pull little things away. I'm not getting into the classification systems, but what you need to know is that specifically for then this is old world, right? This is we're talking about those European countries. They're starting to 
what they're doing is they're saying, hey, we have something here. Bordeaux has something here. Burgundy has something here. We want a regional classification. We want to say the reason that those wines have, if you see like D-O-C-G on a label or A-O-C, those are like controlled appellations. Again, I don't want to go too deep on this, but... um, This is kind of when that started to happen, the 16th to 18th century. Countries in the old world started to say, hey, we want to be known for something and we just don't want anybody, we don't want any old farmer or wine grower putting something out that doesn't represent our region. So that's why today, we still see that today and why a lot of those, uh, you know, if you go into the French section specifically, you know, things are, are named by towns or specific little appellations or regionally um, it's for a reason this is when they really decided that this this is how we want to represent our wine in the world and then phylloxera <laughs> so i'm just going to start with the word here uh phylloxera so phylloxera if you ever have taken a wine course or if you plan on taking a wine course or maybe this is the first that you've heard of it um it is a huge catastrophic event uh, that happened right in the late of the 19th century. So phylloxera is a pest. It's a pest that affects um, the actual vine and it destroys, it literally destroys the vine. And now if you remember, we have already colonized, we, <laughs> Europe has already started to colonize and bring their vines all over the world and phylloxera comes in. So phylloxera starts devastating the European vineyards, like to the point where so much there was little pockets that were untouched and some of the colonized countries were untouched but for the for the most part uh phylloxera destroyed almost like all of the vines in the world so it was devastating impact so and like the wine regions were an economic crisis so as a quick little aside and and you may be wondering what happened how did they how did they solve it is it was solved by rootstocks so again just like classification systems i don't want to get too deep onto this or into <laughs> too deep on uh too deep into this because um it involves a lot of science but basically it was the the roots of the plants that were affected by the pest and it was only the european variety of roots that were uh, affected. So what they did is they figured out that if they took the rootstocks from American uh, grapevines, so native American grapevines, so that so these aren't going to be, the grapes on these vines are not going to be good to produce alcohol. Like they're just not of the right variety to produce really nice wine. But the rootstocks were resistant to this pest of phylloxera. So they grafted the European grapevines, so like the actual onto these American rootstocks, and then they finally started to help revive all the vineyards. So most of the world is still planted today on American rootstocks. Okay, guys, you're still with me? Are you still with me? <laughs> I promise we're almost done. I mean, I love this stuff, so... Um, 
we're just going to kind of finish off with the key points uh, into the 20th century. And then hopefully you've got enough to walk away. Hopefully, you know, uh, you got some tidbits. So really all we're going to talk about in this 20th century now, right? Wine is all around the world. Um, we've been making wine now since uh, five or 3500 BC approximately. We're really just talking about technological advances at this point, right? We're, there's increased temperature control of fermentation. We have stainless steel tanks. We have all sorts of different closures, oak barrel aging techniques, improved wine quality and consistency. You know, the global wine market expanded with globalization, trade, distribution, new wine producing regions, not only outside of Europe and what was originally the new world, but now we're seeing wine being produced in um, regions that it couldn't previously. That, you know, leads us to talk a little bit of, uh, you know, climate change and global warming. So there is, so one interesting fact here, we'll talk about one region specifically. So we don't typically, or in North America, if you don't live near there, we don't typically think of... England as a big wine producing country. And to be honest, it, you know, it wasn't really ever, it was generally too cold. But way in the south of England, there are, it is becoming like very well known and rivaling some really great sparkling wine. So sparkling wine, um, predominantly if we're talking about like traditional sparkling wine, we're looking at, um, Great varieties like Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. And they grow in cooler climates. So the region of Champagne is now warming. And as, excuse me, I need to catch my breath here. And as the temperature warms, uh, you know, as these temperatures rise, the south of England now are the temperatures of what Champagne used to be. So we're seeing new regions emerge because they're warm enough to start producing grapes. The south of England is still colder, it's still wetter, but it's very good for producing cool climate grapes. So we're seeing new regions emerge that didn't previously. The east coast of Canada could be another one of those. Um, And there's lots more to go on. Beyond that, we're going to talk about sustainable sustainability organic practices right we didn't really think about this before um i mean i'm sure there actually there's a lot of ancient techniques that are like biodynamics and and all of that which again something else we won't get into today but this is really where we're seeing the certifications come in we're seeing the consumer really be concerned about this so uh really addressing those environmental concerns in winemaking especially with the globalization uh with winemaking On that note, I am going to finish us off here. I think we've gone long enough. We've dove into a lot. Again, I hope you're you're going to pull something interesting and this was interesting to you. So all I want to end with is really this, is to get you to think about um, 
think about all of the things I said and specifically going back to like the dawn of wine, I guess, if you want to say, and really this social um, and celebratory element, right? The whole point of this, there's all this science, there's all this history. It's really interesting to know. But I think the biggest takeaway is just that wine has always been, and I believe always will be, most importantly, this cultural, social lubricant, right? We're, it's a part of our gatherings. It's a part of our um, celebrations. And of course, like not everyone has to drink wine. It doesn't have to be that way. But I assume that if you're listening to this podcast, you feel somewhat the same. You feel like you want to learn about wine because there's something special. And there is something very special. I mean, we can talk about some distillation and some beer and things like that, but nothing has had no other beverage in Western civilization, I will say, because I can't, um, I have not dove deep enough into Eastern civilization and what, how alcohol played a part, but there is no other beverage in Western civilization that has played such a cultural um, and important role. So on that note, fam, if you made it this far, thanks for listening. I love you all. Um, If you do like this podcast, if you want to hit subscribe, that's obviously going to help me. I'm very new (laughs) in this space, but I'm loving it. I don't know. Quite a few of you are listening, so I'm pretty stoked on that. Hit subscribe, hit like, leave a comment. All of that would be so, so appreciated. Um, Follow me on Instagram at Elysian Wine Club. And very soon I will be releasing my website and a few other fun pieces for you. Bye-bye.